Okay, so we have been going through, really it's kind of a series on the great commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the commandment that Jesus gave, and we're trying to understand it through the lens of spiritual love languages. How do you take this huge, vast, expansive command and make it, and root it to the everyday challenges you and I face? What does it mean to be a disciple who takes that seriously? What would it look like to, to live that out? And we're exploring this command through typologies that on the assumption that just like in human relationships where people give and receive love in certain ways in our relationship with God each of us has a dominant way one maybe even two or three but there's usually one dominant way through which our faith is energized and we connect to God most readily and experience God most powerfully and what we're doing is what does it look like to not simply recognize that and to grow in that type kind of our native or our root love language. But what if we saw Jesus' invitation as a way to expand our understanding of what it means to love God and stretch ourselves to love God, not just in the way that comes easily to us, but in the other dimensions that it might be easy for us to overlook. Because what we're trying to do is shrink the gap. There's this gap that everyone has. I have it, right? The gap between I totally want to live for God and this is how I live my life. And I don't want the gap to be wide. I don't want the gap between my intention and how I actually live to be really far. I want to close that gap as much as possible. But in my experience, we need a plan to do that. So we're working our way towards that. Next week, we're going to look at the strength type. Then we'll kind of put it all together on Baptism Sunday and say, this is a way to think and do discipleship that I think will be challenging for everybody in the room, but helpful and practical and useful and inspiring. And we'll be able to be customized depending on your stage of life and what you're going through. Discipleship is not a one-size-fit-all plan. It's a one-size-fit-all intention to love God with all that we have. But we're going to work towards a way of thinking about discipleship that allows people to say, I could do that, that excites me, and I can see how I could begin to implement that in my everyday life right now, no matter where I am in my walk with Christ, very new or very seasoned, doesn't matter. So today we're going to be looking at the mind type. And the mind type are those Christians who find their love energized, their love for God, their experience of God energized primarily by engaging scripture, growing in biblical knowledge, growing in biblical insight, Christian worldview, biblical worldview. Mind types are drawn to activities that increase their theological knowledge and expand their biblical worldview. Their experience and engagement within churches is usually tied almost, almost exclusively to teaching ministries within the church. And because of this, mind types tend to evaluate their spiritual growth based on how much they've learned lately. That will be kind of the, the default of a mind type. So what new insights have I been given? Um, what new kind of um, dimensions of the text have been brought out for me? Uh, how has my biblical knowledge deepened? That's how kind of a mind type evaluates their own spiritual growth. Those who fall within this type are probably more aware um, on a kind of a intimate or kind of a, in, a, in a tangible way uh, when Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy that man doesn't live on bread alone. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Mind types are like, yes, totally get that. That is so true. Uh, when the prophet Jeremiah is given a prophecy from God, God speaks to Jeremiah, and this is how Jeremiah receives it. He says, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. 
And a mind type says, absolutely, I get that. I, I just want to feast on God's word. I can't get enough. In the same way that um, we might not be able to go a day without eating, a mind type can't go a day without somehow engaging and wrestling with the word of God. They'll listen to podcasts and read articles and attend Bible studies and have discussions and they'll read blogs. And, and they're all in an attempt to learn more about God's truth and how that truth kind of relates to the complex issues that we face today. Now, this can be a burden to those around them because the expression of that kind of theological and intellectual intensity can be a little bit much for some people. Uh, it can be experienced at times as unrelenting and exhausting. But mind types are a gift to the church because they continually challenge the entire community to make sure that the Bible and thoughtful theology, not just reactive theology, but thoughtful theology, lie at the center of what it means to be a disciple to Jesus. In John 17, when Jesus is praying for not only his disciples, but all those who would come to be his disciples, he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. Move them towards greater holiness into the goodness and grandeur of Christ-likeness and do that through your truth, and your word is truth. And so mind types value God's truth, and they want to encourage and help other believers ground their convictions in Scripture instead of maybe opinion or well-intended uh, personal beliefs or experiences. Perhaps the most common stereotype for the mind type is that they're too conceptual and impractical, kind of too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. And while that might be an overstatement, uh, that's where I would lean personally. I think uh, mind types do validate that statement more than the other types. It's really easy for mind types to get absorbed with theological and philosophical issues while inadvertently ignoring the practical demands of their daily responsibilities. And I say inadvertently because it's unintentional. We're not trying to do it. My wife will tell you many times where she's like, are you going to do the dishes? Absolutely I am. The problem is between the table and the sink, I checked my Twitter feed and there was a fascinating new article that came up. So I was loading it up and getting ready and putting my uh, earbuds in. Maybe I was going to listen to a podcast. And so dinner or doing the dishes takes me 30 minutes when it could take me seven because I just get distracted. I just love this stuff and I want to learn more about who God is. Mind types face a really challenging spiritual journey. And I can say that because this is my type by a long shot. If mind types just accept who they are and say, I'm a mind type, that's all I'm going to be. I'm not going to worry about growing heart, soul, strength. I'm just comfortable where I am. And they just stay in their root type. It's going to become very easy for them to spend their entire lives thinking about God instead of living with God and living for God. That, that's kind of a, a fundamental temptation. Mind types like myself can become obsessed with orthodoxies, right teachings, tremendous precision on doctrines, levels of precision that other types are just like, really? Well, that just seems insanely not important in the grand scheme of things, but you're just drilling down to all these precise levels. Mind types can, can be obsessed on the level of ideas and ne neglect orthopraxis, right, practice. They can so value orthodoxy, right, teaching, that they neglect orthopraxis, 
which is what we need. Mind types like myself, we need that for transformation. Immature mind types are often argumentative, opinionated, critical, because it's very easy for them to see themselves as spiritually superior to other people because they have right theology, or at least they assume they do, because they've done a lot of thinking about it and they've done a lot of reading. They know a lot of the Bible, they take a lot of pride, in the best sense of the word, with hungering and and loving God's truth. So it's very easy for them, it's it's kind of a a knife's edge, slippery slope of the heart for them to kind of be like, kind of a bit more of a mature Christian because I'm grounded in the word. This can be especially true, I think, in kind of Bible-believing evangelical churches because in general, it's the mind types within the community that tend to be celebrated and put forward as the models for what a disciple should be. People who know theology, who know their Bibles really well, can articulate it really well, those are unconsciously often the, way, often the people that the church holds up and says, oh, this is what it looks like to be a disciple. And then what happens is soul types and strength types and heart types It's never articulated, but you just kind of feel it in the air that you're kind of a bit of a second-class citizen. And so again, part of what I'd want, uh, what I would be praying for and hoping for is that as a community, we become a church where all the types are honored and where we recognize that discipleship isn't about picking which of the types does God love the most or any of that crazy language. Instead, we say, What God wants is disciples. And disciples are people who are trying to grow in their root type, but growing in all the types, learning to have a fully orbed relationship with God, multi-dimensional, rich relationship with God. But mind types can be prone, especially if there's a lot of pride issues in their heart, can be prone to a sense of spiritual superiority. And because of that, it's often a very difficult and ego-bruising journey to be confronted through experience and through scripture, the words of 1 Corinthians 8.1. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge in and of itself, even if it's theological and grounded and good, but in and of itself, that can be an instrument of the devil. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 13. If I can fathom all mysteries, if I know all this stuff, but if I don't have love, it's worthless. That's a hard word for mind types to hear, but they need to hear it consistently. So this morning, as we've tracked through the heart and the soul types, we get to the mind type now. How many people here would say, I think this is probably my dominant type. It's not that you only experience God this way, but the predominant way you experience God is by wrestling with the text and getting into scripture and just engaging the Bible. How many of you would identify as a mind type? Put your hand up really high. This is important for me to see. Okay, I'll tell you why that's important for me to know, because it's so far in the vast minority of people in this church, which isn't a bad thing, but that's a challenge to me pastorally, because there's only seven <laughs> of you who are going, to, who we're going to kind of immediately gel, and my temptation pastorally, unconsciously, will be to hope it isn't now, but it would have been maybe five or ten years ago to be like, oh, those are the people that actually really get it. So guys, let's, <laughs> let's have a little holy huddle at the front. Kevin's like, yes. He's like, have, let's have a little holy huddle. And of course we're going to love our church. The way we're going to love them is by helping them to become like us. Because we have the right type. And that's not the, and that's a, and that's a, 
again, that's just a very egocentric way of, uh, of, of understanding what discipleship means. But it's a challenge to me pastorally because I'm a mind type pastor. I'll always be a mind type. That's a, my dominant role, uh, my dominant love language with God. But it's important for me to see how few mind types there are here so that I can make sure that I'm learning to stretch and grow myself as a speaker in those other ways that I'm peppering my messages and my teaching and what we do as a church in order to speak a spiritual love language that isn't native to me, but is much more native to the majority of people here. Um, To the seven of you, we need you. We love you. We appreciate you. We need you to encourage and challenge us to make sure that our lives are being shaped by God's word and that our lives are being lived under the authority of God's word and not kind of a Christianese, I'm pretty sure the Bible somewhere says this, or strong opinions or um, even heartfelt, sincere experiences. Mind types are so good at calling us continually back to the word of God as the foundation, um, kind of the starting point and the end point of what it looks like to honor God with our lives. Now, I couldn't talk about mind types without teaching on one of the most probably famous but most important scriptures on the mind, which is Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. So if you have a Bible, you can, you can go there. I'm going to read it here in a second. But before I do, i got to set a little bit of a context, which is Romans 1 through 11, because often when this Bible verse is quoted, it's just quoted as, therefore, brothers and sisters, dot, dot, dot. And The therefore is there for a reason. It's there because something has been said and communicated that now what is being said is the conclusion and logical follow to that thing. So in verses, or chapters 1 to 11, I'm not going to break down every chapter, but here's kind of the gist of what's going on here. Paul is laying out to a bunch of Christians in Rome. That's why it's called the book, uh, the epistle to the Romans. It's a congregational letter written by an early church apostle to a church in Rome. He starts with the gospel in chapter 1, and he calls the gospel the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. He says the gospel is a power. It's not just an idea. It's an actual power that can change things. And he begins by highlighting how every human stands in judgment before God because we've rejected God, built our lives around some kind of idol. The idols kind of change depending on the culture and depending on the person. But everybody has substituted the true and living God for an idol of their own making. And while we deserve separation from God, hell and wrath, while we deserve for God to say, you know what? You've made your bed. You're going to lie in it. I'm walking away. Paul says, think and reflect. God would have been fully justified to do that. And yet what we see in redemptive history, in Israel's story, in the history of what God's been doing, is God is doing the opposite movement. He's constantly calling us back. He's incredibly faithful. He's incredibly patient. He's fighting for us. He's trying to woo us back. He's pursuing us. God could have judged us and brought us to an end, and instead he's working gently and slowly to save us, to reclaim us. We were spiritually dead through Adam. We were slaves to sin's power. But now those who have turned to Christ have been made alive and are now a different kind of slave. They're a slave to righteousness, to the right kind of humanity, living rightly before God and before our neighbor. God has given Christians the Holy Spirit and replaced our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. So now we're sensitive towards God. We're starting to... Uh, learn to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates. 
And, and Paul is kind of building this whole case. He's just laying out example after example. And it gets to the end of chapter 11. And he ends chapter 11 with this doxology. And a doxology, again, just means word of glory. Paul is just getting amped up. You can, you can feel, if you read it all the way through, and just read Romans 1 through 11 sometime all the way through. Don't stop. Don't break it up. Read it all the way through. You'll feel, you should feel this intensity building. And you get to the end of 11. And Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. His paths are beyond tracing. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsel? Who's ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things and to him be the glory forever. Amen. And Paul puts down the pen. And I always imagine, and maybe the next time you read Romans 12, maybe you imagine this too. I imagine Paul is overwhelmed by the goodness and the greatness of God, and he closes his eyes, and he wipes the tears from his eyes. And he kind of collects himself. He's got to catch his breath. His mind is spinning. He can't hold in the glorious nature of who this God is. And then he writes these words. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. When we become Christians, God puts a supernatural desire in our hearts to live for him, to become living sacrifices. We, not, we might not understand what that means, but that desire gets planted in us. And we begin to desire and to long to be holy people and to live lives that are pleasing to God Whereas before, we were just living to please ourselves in some way, shape, or form. And Paul says um, the nature of this new kind of life is summarized in this line. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be uh, transformed by the renewing of your mind. He, he starts by saying, do not conform to the pattern of this world. There's not a lot of uh, translational tricks or interesting insights here. It really just says, means what it says. Don't shape your behavior. The word conform is, re is referring to just the way you live out your life, your behavior. Don't shape your behavior according to the patterns of this world. Now, world there does have a slightly different meaning than what we think of as like the world. You mean creation? No, it, it's, a, it's a world that's sometimes translated as aeon or age. Don't behave according to the patterns of the age. Now, why would he say it that way? Sometimes in the Bible you talk about, you hear about the present age or the age to come or surely I am with you always even to the end of the age. Um, it's because at, by the time of Jesus, Jewish thinkers have two pictures of history. History is going along in a timeline and as history goes along, this is the present age where this is the, the, the way that we experience the world. It's a fallen age, it's broken, it's God's good world, but it's been overwhelmed and corrupted by sin and death. But there's a coming new age, 
not new age in the new agey sense of the word, but a literal new age coming where God is going to intervene. He's going to do something and bring the old age to an end. And from this point forward, God's new creation age is going to spill forward. And the marker, how Jewish people assumed and thought, because they read this into the prophecies of the Old Testament, what was going to be the line between the old age and the new age was the resurrection of the righteous. When the dead who are righteous in God are raised bodily, they're resurrected, that will signal the dawn of new creation. So early Christians have a bit of a paradigm shift to go through because there was someone who was resurrected and he was truly righteous, but it was just one. It was just Jesus. And now the early church, these new Jewish, then now Christian believers are saying, maybe it wasn't the old age, stop, new age. Maybe these overlap because the son of God has been resurrected. God's new age, his new creation force has started. We are in a new age as Christians, even while we live in this old age that is coming to an end, this dying age where sin and death still seem to be at play. So the early Christians believed that even though the full blessings of the coming age still lay in the future, ultimately when Christ returns, it had already begun with Jesus. The resurrection had ushered in new creation and Pentecost had flooded the church with God's new creation power through the Holy Spirit. So through faith and baptism, what Christians were declaring is that while these two ages are overlapping and running concurrently, I'm gonna live according to the patterns of the new age. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm a part of the new thing. I'm not a part of the old age. That, that one's dying. I'm a part of the new thing because of what Jesus has done. So Paul is saying, don't conform to the patterns of an age that is going nowhere. It's petering out. It's, it's time is numbered. This, isn't, this, this age isn't going to go on forever. God's new age is already broken in. So now while there's a chance, get involved in what God is doing now. The high school students here in town had a grad last week. The aeon, the age of high school, is coming to an end. But... I guarantee you there will be students who for the next six months, some for the next six years, and regrettably, probably even some for the next 60, will still live according to the patterns of that age. They won't step into the new opportunity and the new age that God is giving them. They'll just continue to live, to work, study, socialize. All the patterns that kind of worked or were good enough in high school, they'll continue to live according to those patterns. And what Paul is saying is, that's over. God has opened up something so much bigger and more robust and more interesting. Why would you continue to live and behave as if you were in high school when God is calling you to this? Stop patterning your life as if you're 15 years old and step into maturity and adulthood, not just in Christ, not just in terms of your behavior, but he says, be transformed. See, if you didn't know the rest of this verse, if all you read was, do not conform to the pattern of this age, how would you expect the next part of the verse to go? You'd probably expect it to say, don't conform to the pattern of this age, but conform to the pattern of God's new age. That wouldn't be a bad thing to say, but that's not what, that's not what is said. It's not a sequential, the sequence doesn't make sense. Paul says, 
do not conform to the pattern of this age, but be transformed. Don't conform, which is basically about behavior. Don't act like according to the principles of this age, but be transformed. The word transformed in Greek, metamorpheo, refers to a total transfer, um, the to- totality of your personhood. It's not just about acting different. It's about being, it's a complete from the inside out change, the way, um, you know, a caterpillar is transformed into something completely different in a butterfly. And this word transformed, it, this is a, I just learned this this week, so I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. Um, but it's, it's pretty powerful, I think, and it's pretty important for us to note. The word metamorpheo that is used in Romans uh, 12, uh, 2 here is only used four times in the New Testament. Half the time, it's, tr- it's translated transformed, and the other two times, do you know what it's translated as? Transfigured. Mark 9, verses 2 and 3. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led him up on a high mountain where they were all alone. And there, he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. He was metamorphosized, metamorphosized before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Paul is not saying... Don't behave like that, just behave like this. Here's as close as I can get in my limited, now five-day-old understanding of where this new inside of this text is going. Don't behave according to the patterns of this age. Instead, let God become in God who you are. Become who you are in God. Don't just, don't act like this. Become an entirely different kind of human being. A different kind of creature. Here's a really important takeaway that I I really hope everyone hears this. The Christian life isn't a modification or improvement on one's behavior. Christianity at its heart isn't people who have decided to try and be better people. That's not the heart of Christianity. It's a good thing to try and be a better person. The world would be better if more people took that seriously. That's called moralism. I want to become a more moral and decent and ethical human being. That's a good thing. That's not what Christianity is at its foundation. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous British preacher, says, Christians are concerned primarily not with an improvement or reformation of their behavior, but a transformation of their character. And Rabbi Zacharias says it even more powerfully. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. That's what's going on here. Don't just pattern yourself this way or think that Christianity just means behaving a little bit differently. Allow God to rise you up Allow yourself to be born again into an entirely new kind of life through the power of God's spirit and God's word. And Paul says this is available to anybody in Christ, but it happens through the renewing of your mind. A renewed mind is what happens when Christians actively seek to be influenced and challenged by the word of God, by the spirit's power. 
And so what happens as believers saturate their lives with the word of God, they listen, they study, they reflect, they, they memorize, they read with a heart that is quick to obey what they find there. That's what it means to pursue the renewal of the mind. At the center of Christianity is a mind that is alert and awake to who God is and who we are and what we're called to be and it's part of this new age, part of this new creation in Christ. And it's, to be a Christian is to have a mind that is on fire with new creation imagination. Not just mimicking what you've known, not even just mimicking what you've known in your church context for the last 30, 50, 60 years, but saying, if I am becoming this in Christ, how now should I live? From the totality of my personhood, from the inside out, not just I'm going to try and not do these bad things and do some of these good things. It goes much deeper. It's much more profound than that. So Romans 12, 1 and 2, some Christians have read it as a call to get away from the world. Don't, don't conform to the patterns of this world. Oh, don't be involved in this world. That's not what it's saying at all. It's actually a call to live as an, as an entirely different kind of human being in the world. Live in the world. Go into your workspaces. Go into your school spaces. Go into your families and into your relationships. But just don't go in copying the patterns of this world. Go in transfigured. Be an entirely different kind of presence because of what God is doing in and through you. And that different kind of human being happens as we pursue a renewed mind. Lastly, Paul says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, because then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. Some people sitting here and you're like, I, why would I even bother doing this? That sounds like a lot of work. Sounds like a lot of reading, a lot of, lot, like a lot of thinking. Why, why, should I, do I, why do I need the renewed mind? Why should I even want it? Because as your mind is renewed, you will come to discover something. You will come to know God's will. And more than that, you will come to know that his will, his deepest intentions, his most fundamental posture towards you is good and it's pleasing and it's perfect. Now that's important because I want you to think for a moment in your mind's eye. Think of everybody that you know who is not a Christian, is not a believer, they're antagonistic towards God. It's probably true that for a lot of them, they fundamentally presume Part of their rejection of God, part of the reason why they ignore God and just live life on their own terms is they don't, they, they don't presume that God's will for them is good and pleasing and perfect. They presume his will for them is not good and it's going to lead them away from pleasure and it's far from perfect. And yet Paul says, that's not true. See, a lot of non-Christians reject God because they think, oh, if there is a God, all he wants to do is steal and kill and destroy any hope for health and happiness and life and vibrancy and connectedness and justice in this world. But as your mind gets renewed, you realize, oh, there absolutely is someone who wants to steal, kill, and destroy all those things. But it's not God. It's Satan. God's will, God's fundamental posture is to push forward and to bring to life new creation. Good. To lead us into deep forms of sustainable, God-glorifying, human-flourishing-inducing pleasure. It's a good thing that God has in store for us. And so as your mind is renewed, you will come to know, and not just get it, but know it, that 
you will want to serve God more because you will understand and know that, what, that following God will lead you down a path that is more good and more pleasurable and more perfect than anything you could have cobbled together out of your own unredeemed imagination. We just can't compete with the good things that God has in store for us. So we renew our minds in order to get ourselves out of the way and say, yes, God, I'll, I'll just do this. It doesn't make sense to me, but I know your will is good and pleasing and perfect, so I'll pursue it. So here's how you can take action this week. Two thoughts. Number one, uh, if this isn't a strength for you, I would challenge you for the next seven days just to engage the Bible every day. And I say engage because I don't care how you do it. You want to listen to it on the radio. You want to get an audio Bible. You want to just read chunks of it. Maybe you want to read through Romans, all of Romans this week. Maybe you want to read through a gospel or just challenge yourself. But just do something. Listen, discuss, share every day, just for the next seven days. If normally you're like, Jeff, I'm not going to lie to you. I pretty much only open my Bible on Sundays when you tell me to. That's okay. I'm just saying for the next seven days, see what it feels like and experience stepping into that new creation vision of a renewed mind. Chew it up. Like Jeremiah says, consume it. Eat it. Just be hungry for it. Three times a day. Do it with your meals. Read a little bit of scripture. And number two, consider committing to some kind of a Bible reading plan. I think that's really important. We all kind of know I should be reading the Bible. Um, but we need a plan because there's lots of times where we don't feel like reading the Bible. And if we only do things in our life based on how we feel or whether we feel like doing them, our lives are going to be disastrous. And it's the same spiritually. So let's just consider sticking to some kind of a plan, even if it's a plan that says one chapter a day. I'm going to start with a gospel and just try and read through the gospel of Mark. It's a nice short one, one chapter a day. And pray about it and pray through it and say, God, what are you trying to communicate to me in this? I want to close by showing you an example of someone who is not conforming to the pattern of this age, but is being transfigured by the renewing of his mind. This is Dan Price. Dan Price is the 30-year-old CEO of Gravity Payments in Seattle. You might have heard of Dan Price because about six weeks ago, he announced out of a lot of personal reflection that uh, all of his, he, 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 he brought them together in a room, all of his uh, 120 employees. And he generated a lot of hospitality because he announced that he was going to commit to pay every single one of his 120 employees an annual salary with a starting salary of $70,000 US. That would be the minimum wage at Gravity Payments for any employee. And Dan Price said he did this because he was concerned that lower-paid employees were struggling to make ends meet. And he had wrestled, Dan's a Christian, and he had wrestled as a born-again Christian with all the justice scriptures in the Old Testament. And he had struggled and wrestled with the implications of the gospel. Look at this Jesus who gives up his riches that we might become rich in him, even though he becomes poor. Look at this great inversion. And he held this together, and he let Jesus transform him from the inside out in such a way that he said, there's got to be a different way of doing business. And I'm, I'm not exactly sure. And, he, if you, and you can find articles and videos on him. And he kind of says, I don't actually know if this is going to work. I just feel compelled that this is what I need to do. In light of the U.S.'s growing economic inequality, the 30-year-old Christian saw his own $1 million salary as part of the problem. So effective immediately, Dan Price makes $70,000 U.S. dollars. So that other employees are all going to get bumped to 50000 this year to all be bumped to 70000 by 2016. Instead of conforming to the patterns of the old age, 
that say, well, in the business world, this is the way things work. You maximize profits, period. Yeah, that might come at the expense of employees. There might have to be some creative exploitation, but that's kind of justifiable. I mean, that's, that's bottom line in business, right? I mean, that's the way things go. That's the way you got to do things. Instead of conforming to that pattern, Dan sought God and he, he, allowed, he allowed his mind to be renewed and he said, it's going to be a different way. I'm going to show a different way. A lot of people applauded the decision. You can find a video of this online. This is when he announces it. You can see some people are like, this is amazing. And some people are like, what? And <laughs> there's people crying in this video. There's people applauding. It's, a, it's really beautiful to watch. Some business leaders were like, this is amazing. Good on you, Dan Price. Some business leaders are like, you are the most naive CEO in all of the United States of America. This is not going to work. This model is not sustainable. But of course it's not going to make sense to a lot of people because they're operating by the principles of the old age. They haven't thought deeply enough. They have, their minds haven't been renewed. But think about this. With this one courageous act, Dan Price and his employees have discovered something. They've discovered that God's will is good. That God's will is very pleasing. And that God's will is perfect. God's intentions for his business and his employees are so good. And now a lot of the employees in that company who are not Christian, they now know that. They felt that in a very real and tangible way. And the update on the story is that Gravity's business has increased substantially since they announced. And I think the reason is, is because other people, other clients who were having their credit card payments and stuff processed by other conglomerates who were just like maximum profits, they said, I don't just see Dan operating business with some modifications. I don't see just like, well, this is the way some people choose to do business, but like we're just going to tweak some things. What they see is a transfigured business model. They actually say, no one's doing this. This doesn't make sense according to the patterns of this age. It's like it's an, it's an entirely new way to do business. It's an entirely new way to be a CEO, and people want it. They want to be a part of that. They sense, even if they can't articulate it, they sense something fundamentally good, pleasing, and perfect is happening here. I want to get close to that. And if we allow ourselves to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, our neighbors will find themselves interested and hungering and haunted by what they see because they'll see more than just an exchange of some bad behavior, behaviors for some good ones. They're going to see an exchange between an old age and a new age, between moralism and transformation in Christ. Let's pray. God, as we leave this place, may our hearts, um, may you light our hearts on fire. May our imaginations be ignited with what can happen when we no longer conform to the patterns of this age and allow ourselves to be transfigured by your grace. In you, Jesus, we are dazzling white. You have made us brighter and whiter and purer and cleaner and more powerful than, than it is possible anywhere else, God. 
And would you please, please, please do that work of transformation in us. And may others see it. And may others hunger for it. May we lead them to you so that they can find it. In your name, amen.